If I remember correctly from one of the electronic mails, you had a little something to say about RoboCop. <laughs> it's a great movie. It is a delightful movie. Did you, before you launch into your RoboCop thing, have you heard about the recent efforts by the good people of Detroit to get a RoboCop statue built downtown? I actually did hear a little bit about that. Um, I can't remember when, but yeah, I, I fully support that. Yes, apparently at first it was a no-go, but then after quite the internet outpouring, they reopened talks of a possibility of this. Or at least the last I heard about it, which was, I guess, I th- quite a while ago. I think when all is said and done, the internet's lasting contribution to American society, at least, will be meme-based public art in various places. Yeah. And otherwise be totally unnecessary. That, but I mean... RoboCop is quite necessary. I mean, he will single-handedly save Detroit of the future, so they kind of owe him preemptively. Yeah, get it on the ground floor, I always say. So, um, I have to ask, Chris, why yeah. why now with RoboCop? Because I, you know, I think I saw the movie when I was like eight, and I haven't really thought about it much since. And I'm guessing I'm not unusual. Um, among those who that's, happen to be listening That's pretty to much this. my experience as well. So when you said you wanted to talk about RoboCop, I thought, that's great, but, um, yeah, I, I, I don't know. What, yeah, well, you maybe didn't see the other survey that came out. Um, uh, you maybe saw the recent, um, there are a bunch of articles and, and I guess outcry over the fact that George Lucas is re, 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 re-releasing the Star Wars movies yeah, with yet more changes. In the wake of all that stuff, there was this article I saw about the cult movies isn't really the right term, but these movies that large segments of the population view on a regular basis. Star Wars is, of course, uh, one of those, uh, at least the originals were, uh, Indiana Jones. Um, there were a lot of seasonal stuff. My mom, uh, like many people, apparently has a lot of things she watches at Christmas. Mm-hmm. But apparently oh, something sure. like a third of people in the sample watch RoboCop Seriously? once a month. Really? No, I made this whole thing up. I thought you were. I thought it was obvious. I was joking about co- talking about RoboCop. Oh, you thought so? Wait, wait. You were joking about talking about RoboCop. Oh yeah, completely. Oh well, damn. <laughs> now what are we going to talk about? I was. So I mean, I could some sort of like. I thought I could there was something going, cool but... coming. I know exactly. Ah, I'm resigning off of the podcast in disgust after the great <laughs> RoboCop team. I mean, because here's the thing about here's what's funny about that is that Jesse isn't I'm going to talk about RoboCop for 40 minutes exactly the kind of thing you can imagine Chris doing. Yes, exactly. Like I that's actually weird. believed he had something. That's why yeah. it's funny to me. Not getting to hear Chris talk about RoboCop is literally the worst thing that has ever happened to America in early September. I can I, – how, how – to what extent did I have you going with the, the news report about the movies? Um, I thought you might have been joking about that. But I thought you had stuff on RoboCop though. Because I can yeah. come up with something about RoboCop. We can still do it. No, it's too well, late. you're just making it up. You queered the deal. <laughs> <laughs> can, can you say that? That is – it's – 
a, not an offensive term. <laughs> Queered the deal? I think that's from before queer had any connotation to Yes, that was well before queer had oh, any obviously. connotation of any kind. Like queer than a $2 bill? And while there's been a lot of... Uh, I don't know about that one. What is that? What is a that? A lot of stuff to, to, to retake the word queer by those communities. There's been no attempt to retake queer the deal in any way. But see, it's such a... I don't know. It's a, it's a fun word to say. It's like a semantics thing, you know. Um, who is that guy in... Osgood, Osgood's semantic word differential from the psychology world. Like, uh, you know, the idea that certain words, just because of the way they sound, have certain effects on people, you know? It's one of those words like that. It's, it's an interesting sounding word. Yeah. I want to reclaim it for the old timey speaking community. There you go. Where's their voice? No pun intended. Yeah. Their voice is off doing commercials <laughs> for magic curing tonic powders. And so then what will, what shall we discuss this evening? I feel like some other ideas were bandied about, or were those Arturo's ideas and he so cavalierly has ditched us? Well, I know he had some, he had some follow-up stuff from last week, but, you know. Uh, that was actually my suggestion. There's some follow-up. Oh, was it you? There were some comments on the website. I don't know. Do we have stuff to say? Uh, let me go to them. I was thinking about a follow, uh, while you're doing that, just briefly. You know what I've been I'm doing? Also gonna go to them. You know what I've been doing this evening is uh we were talking about writing. And yes, sir. um I'm I'm working on my literature review uh for the dissertation, right? And I and I knew I'd written about a bunch of stuff before. Like I was like, I've written all this crap before. So I decided to go through all my old papers from all my classes. And basically I just went through and just picked out any one that I thought might possibly be worth reviewing. And I've been reading rereading them. My God, that's painful. You want to like really mortify yourself, you know, like go back and reread something you wrote like five years ago for a class that at the time, like you remember doing the reading, you remember talking about it and you kind of remember thinking that you did a good job on it and, and no, you didn't. It's painful. I, here's what I wonder though, is like, do people who have long publishing careers do the same thing? You know, like, do they go back and reread some article they wrote a decade ago and are just embarrassed by it? Or is this, yeah. clear, you know, I don't know. I Probably though, not because... because they have to defend it as their sort of intellectual legacy and as a I guess, yeah, uh, support structure for their current ideas because everyone tends to work. No, I don't know. Not necessarily. I mean, there's obviously there's some public examples of people who do very different things and more or less, I wouldn't say renounce their early work, but distance themselves from it you know i feel as if that exists this is not a thing i'm making up is it it's it's it exists i don't think it exists as much as people well yeah i mean maybe they're not publicly but like i think in the sense john's saying where like you go back to some of the early stuff you wrote in your career and you just kind of cringe at like how clunky you worded it or like how you know unrefined your idea of it was or something like that you know but but i mean that's what i wonder if there's like this um like path dependency thing too like the people who write crap early on like you know you get one shot right so i'm lucky that the crap that i wrote was in graduate seminars right um because if i'm much better than that now then the first thing people so like i'm i've been in grad school forever this is the advantage of that right you get to immature over like several mini careers within one graduate career. It's great. Um, but it's no, true. I mean, I, I, what, 
what would happen if I'd like rushed? I mean, this is, I guess, maybe the, the whole if I'd rushed on the job market as a grad student or something like, I don't know, man, this stuff was pretty bad. A lot of it This is pretty question. good. I mean, I will say it was useful. I mean, ultimately, you know, to, to, to finish the story, I did actually find a bunch of stuff like, oh, yeah, I forgot about that. Oh, yeah, I forgot about that. So I, I got what I needed out of the exercise, but it was still kind of painful. You know, like when you go back and you read words and you're like, I have no recollection of writing that, but I can't remember. I have no recollection of ever thinking that or ever even agreeing with that. Why right, would I have know, written that? Sometimes I got to say I'm reading that and I'm just like, wow, that's a really clever idea. I don't. How did I come up with that? And why don't I remember that? You know, like... Uh, I come up with so very few clever ideas. I hate it when I stumble upon one that I've written down. Have you have you reread your old blog post, Jesse? Ever? Uh rarely. Yeah. See, that's even worse because at least you know grad grad student seminar papers are you know there's some formality that prevents them from being too bad. But like I went yeah. through about a year ago and cleaned up my blog, and I ended up just deleting a bunch of the old posts. I was like, I don't want this out there with my name on it anymore. You know, this is bad. This I, is bad. I've this definitely bad. been contemplating doing that sort of thing. And I'm sure sometime during the dissertation writing pro process when I really need to procrastinate, I'll get to it. <laughs> I mean, now, to um, be clear, it wasn't like a, it wasn't like an issue of, oh, my God, I don't want this associated with my name. This makes me look bad and unprofessional. It was nothing like that. It was just I don't even agree with that. And it was the stuff I was saying earlier. Like, I don't remember ever thinking that that is not unique or original or interesting at all. I don't want that out there. You know. Yeah, that's I'm I'm the same way. That's what I'm more concerned about. Just the stuff where I'm like, oh man, you sound like an idiot. Like, what were you? What were you writing there? You know? Um, yeah, not anything like. Man, it's you know marketing oneself, right? It's that uh, you gotta gotta make the brand. You know, I'm today's <laughs> hip young go getter, man. I'm busting social media all over the place. Busting social media. I hate social. I hate that term. It's just funny media. because yeah, I don't really use. I mean, I use Facebook like every other human being on earth, but like I don't do any of the other stuff. The thing is, like, I don't. I mean, John, you're still on Twitter, right? I like Twitter. Yeah, I, I like Twitter much better than Facebook. Well, I have to say, see, the thing is, like, the reason I don't use Twitter is because, like, I don't know, I'm not, like, a celebrity. Like, who cares what well, I'm thinking here, at that particular moment? Yeah, that's not, that's not, that's a small sliver of Twitter. Like, okay, well, please, so, so, the here's, the other so here's, here's the distinction that I, you often hear made, is that Facebook is for people that you know, Twitter's for people that you wish you knew, right? So, on Twitter, and, and the other thing about Facebook is Facebook has this, uh, if you follow someone, they have to follow you back, right? So it's like a, a you know, synchronous following, right? So I can't see what you're writing unless you agree to let me and, and so on and so Or at least that's traditionally the way it works for most people. Twitter, on the other hand, is asynchronous following. I think this is the terms people use. It's kind of jargony. But the idea is that, you know, like I, I can follow now to find celebrity. I mean, yes, you can get on Twitter and just follow Ashton Kutcher and a bunch of celebrities. Um, but then there are also a lot of people who are kind of Twitter celebrities, right? Who just have perfected the art of saying funny and clever and witty things in 140 characters. Um, or there are people who, like, like for example, uh, there's this guy I follow called Bad Banana, and he just says funny stuff. Like, that's, that's his thing. And there's another guy, uh, I think his name's Adam Isaacson. Like, I don't even know who the guy is, but he says funny things. And he, they sort of become known on Twitter as people who are clever and say funny things, you know. And that's kind right. of fun. And then there's also, you know, like, I follow a lot of places just that link to stuff, you know. Um, so uh, there's this uh, site called Long Reads. And there's another site called Longform.org that's kind of the same thing that just link to well-written long pieces around the internet. 
So, you know, stuff that would be like in the New Yorker or something. So I, I like to follow that just because I'll get those things and I'll bookmark them and, you know, put save them to Instapaper and then read them later on my Kindle or something, you know. So and then there's also people that I know. There's a lot of sociologists I follow on Twitter. Um, so it's a much richer mix of people and purposes than Facebook, which is mostly family and friends, you know. Sure. So for me, day to day, I will check Twitter. I will check Facebook occasionally, you know, like when I'm up to it. But Twitter, I follow. So I don't know. They're, they're very different, actually, for us, the, fa- the way people lump them in together. And people that don't get Twitter, I think, have basically maybe gone to like uh, Twitter.com slash whatever Ashton A plus K or something like that. Like they'll go there and they'll be like, oh, this isn't very interesting. I don't get this. You know, and Twitter yeah, plays that up, too. Like if you sign up for Twitter, they'll suggest people for you to follow. And it's a bunch of celebrities. Um, sure. So unless you sort of know, you know, crap. You know, right. Anyway. Sounds right. Yeah. Um, so are we just going to start the whole shebang over? I don't know that we've actually had anything. Oh, I actually oh, think, the, first, got, I think the first 15 minutes or so were awesome. The really? whole, the whole. Oh, yeah. Just from like picking up and going right on to RoboCop and finding out that you were making fake it RoboCop. Fake Robo, RoboCop talking about. OK, but you at least have to cut out my horribly insensitive and unfunny September 11th joke. When was that? I don't remember that. Uh, it was something like Chris not talking about RoboCop is literally the worst thing that's ever happened to America in early September. <laughs> I didn't hear that. <laughs> I, <laughs> I did not hear that, Jesse, but I, there's no way in hell I'm taking that out. That's hilarious. You have to, dude. You no, have it was to. it was hilarious. It's not like you said like uh so I don't understand why everyone's making a big deal about the seventh anniversary of September eleventh or something. I mean, <laughs> right, September eleventh, two thousand four. What I don't understand. That again could make me it could make me look like I'm quite minimizing. No, <laughs> I think every episode we do should end with ten minutes of defending <laughs> some previous comments. Let me go get a beer. You're, gonna, you're seriously going to go get a beer? <sighs> um, no. Oh, um, damn it. I was going to go get a drink. Oh, well, go for it. Um, yeah, that's fine. It's only appropriate. Okay, so apparently uh, Thomas Vanderven, who is a sociologist, I believe, right? Uh, yep. A sociologist where? Ohio, Ohio University. Ohio University. So, go Bobcats. Uh, Thomas Vanderven wrote a book called Getting Wasted. And uh, there was an article in Salon about it. And uh, I thought it might make for a fun conversation. Um, because basically what he does is sort of, uh, you know, every, everyone knows that drinking's bad. Don't drink. Kids shouldn't drink. No one underage should drink. You know, and you shouldn't binge drink. Shouldn't drink a lot. Um, Unless you're cool. <laughs> but yet, you know, everyone, every, or at least a large uh, proportion of college students uh, get together in large groups every weekend and, and drink heavily. And, you know, the, the idea is like even even the same kids, of course, you know, who are the ones who are like in high school that swore they'd never drink and, you know, or even a year earlier swore they'd never drink or even like to pretend they don't drink even though they do. Right. You know, there's this like, but why are they all doing it? Why is it fun? You know, if, if it was miserable and it really sucked, people wouldn't drink. Right. Or it would be like this niche thing that only a few people do. But since everyone does it, what's going on here? You know, right. and instead of just uh, treating it as some pathology and moralizing, he sort of says, uh, so why is drinking such a huge part of 
this uh, youth culture and what's going on. Um, and I, I don't know. I thought it was kind of fun. Yeah. Well, to me, like before you actually get into the like the meat of the article, like I just I like these kind of studies because it's one of those things where it's like, well, why does everybody binge drink? It's like fun dude you know what i mean but like that's it's like the answer is so obvious but is it really like why is it like why is it this versus that versus you know whatever and just kind of like it seems like such an obvious answer but it's uh more complicated than you think but like to me i just love this kind of sociology that like looks at the more like sort of obvious mundane things in life i don't know yeah i mean the obvious answer to why it's fun is that you know you can let your guard down and have fun a little bit you know i mean everyone's concerned everyone especially at that age you're you know you're concerned with status you're concerned with making friends you're concerned with not looking like an idiot these are all horrible things that you know like when you get older you maybe you get a little more comfortable with yourself and you make an idiot voluntarily on podcasts every couple of weeks um but when you know when you're like 20 18 19 fresh out of high school you know you're trying to fit in trying to learn what to do you know, drinking relaxes you and, you know, you can, you know, maybe do things and relax in ways that, you know, un, uh, 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 undrunk you couldn't. Right. So that's like the obvious answer. Why it's yeah, fun. Dude, for, hey, for making fun of me earlier, dude, undrunk, undrunk. undrunk. What's okay. the word? You, you know, you get yourself in these things where you see, I'm not afraid of making myself look like an idiot. You know, I don't, I don't have to be drunk to do these. Fair um, enough. But what what would what would the word be? On what? I see. I started with on, and I I I dug myself a hole. I guess yeah. You do these things. Unintoxicated. There. That, That's perfect. That doesn't sound that much better. But it doesn't. None of them do. Um, You're right. You just shouldn't have thrown out the un without anything to back it up, man. I know. I know. I gotta watch myself. I have recordings, people. This is the magic happening right here. Uh, so anyway, so that's the obvious, that's like, that's like sort of the obvious answer that people will give. Right. But then he goes on to talk about, uh, you know, how, well, maybe, maybe there's more to it than that. Right. Um, and how I'll just, I'll just quote from the article. How about that? Please. Is that fair? They're more likely to do and say things when they drink that they normally wouldn't do. Show affection to their peers, get angry at them, get more emboldened to sing and dance and take risks and act crazy. And there's a ton of laughing that goes on. It creates this world of adventure. It creates war stories, bonding rituals. When things go wrong, the getting sick, getting arrested, getting upset, it gives them an opportunity to care for one another, to deliver social support. So you've got young adults who, for the first time, are taking care of a sick person, staying up all night with them, consoling them when they're upset, it's an opportunity for them to try on adult ro roles. So, yeah, it, you know, it's it's kind of an interesting take because you're taking something that uh, I think, Jesse, you said this earlier, so I'll steal your point a little bit. Please. <laughs> you know, the assumption is that drinking is this very immature activity, right? Why do kids drink? Because they're immature and want to have fun. But actually saying that there's actually some maturity to it. There are some lessons in maturity that can be gained. Uh yeah, and I think, you know, especially for, um, like, especially for men, I mean, I think it's already a well-made point that, you know, a lot of, especially young men, use alcohol as a way to, you know, express emotions that are otherwise not allowed to express, usually, and that kind of thing. But I think, especially this this uh, taking care of each other thing, like, I mean, I definitely know a lot of guys who would take care of guys when they were, like, sick, drunk, who certainly would not be taking such fine care of them if they were just like regular sick, you know, uh, because that's not, there's not like this. So it's not like, you know, acceptably masculine in that particular situation. That's true. 
I don't know. Chris, what do you think? Chris, you don't, you got any ideas? Got any thoughts? Not just yet. It's weird that, it's weird that, that drinking, and maybe it's just binge drinking, is always characterized as a, a youthful indiscretion or an immature thing. When to anyone, I mean, if you look anywhere else in society, people still drink and still do stupid things when they drink and so on and so forth. So it's weird that we localize it to, to the college age groups when it's, it's part of daily life and an important sort of ritualized part of, of daily life for a lot of people. Not only people who may have a dependency on it, but also if, if, you, if you talk to lawyers, they'll say that the, the ritual of the profession, the golf of the law world is essentially drinking. Yeah, I mean, go to any New Year's Eve party with, you know, on some average suburban block with all like 50, 60 year old people and they're all drunk, right? It's right, not like it's yeah. just a young thing to do. And I, I don't know. So but it's certainly much more frequent when young. I mean, there are a significant number of college students who do that on, you know, more than a weekly basis as opposed to for major holiday kind of things. You know what I mean? Yeah, but it's, that's not... probably where it gets the youthful patina. True. But again, you can understand that it's structural more than cultural. It's just that they have more opportunities to do it. And right, less yeah. responsibilities. Well, ultimately, I mean, it's not I like believe... there's a... I believe yeah. that's also part of this guy's argument that it's not necessarily their age. It's the structural thing of moving away from home. And cause I think, I believe later on in the article, it says he does support the idea of lowering the drinking age, um, for this notion exactly. So that like moving away to college unsupervised with no idea what you're doing is no longer the first time you're experimenting with alcohol. That's true. Like in other countries, kids grow up having a glass of wine with dinner or something. So then when they get to school, drinking isn't, you know, this, this dark forbidden taboo thing that they can only do once their, their, their parents can't catch them. So uh, along the, the, the point you were just making. Oh, wait, never mind. Actually, I totally mischaracterized his point about lowering the drinking age. Said, I yeah, I was going back and reading it again. Like I, I didn't have it right. Uh, I was confusing it with, uh, I guess, some sort of popular opinion. So what, so what was he saying? So I was actually completely wrong, ignoring everything I said. So he says that it actually wouldn't make much of a difference because it would only make a difference if it was, a, as a good sociologist says, if it was accompanied by some cultural changes. Um, so again, it's this idea that, you know, part of it too is the thrill of deviance, of acting out in some minor and somewhat safe way. Um, and so again, you know, this... Until you can remove that sort of deviant like image to binge drinking, which is quite different than lowering the drinking age. Um, the whole deviance thing is interesting here, I think. Because I think – I mean there, there's definitely legal things against drinking when you're underage. And there's definitely a need to get away with it, whether you're, it's your parents or school administrators or RAs or whatever it might be. But if you look just a little bit beyond that, it's such a normal thing. I mean, kids who are going to drink have it pretty well figured out. And I think that's when the other cultural reasons that he talks about for uh, for why they drink start to take over more than that deviance thing, that they're doing it just to experiment with deviance or to, to try and take on an adult role or anything. It's, you know, they're, they're very strategic about it and, and it's normalized for them. Does that make any sense? I don't know, Jesse. You're the you're the criminology person here. Maybe you have a, a better understanding of the way people talk about deviance. 
but there's a specific kind of deviance that is normal, right? I mean, uh, it's like things that are taboo that everyone does anyway, but you don't talk openly about them in most everyday contexts, so they become deviant, even though they're not unusual. Um, sure, you know what I mean. Yeah. Uh, drinking's one. I mean, for like, so like, for I kids, don't think drinking is one. That's what I'm saying. Well, as as much as people, I mean. It, Everyone I knew who drank a lot and that was really part of their life talked about it constantly. Yeah, I guess I'm thinking, I guess I'm thinking like, uh, younger, maybe, maybe in high school and also in the context of being around parents and stuff. Like when you were underage drinking, it's normal in the sense that lots of people do it, but it's still sort of taboo and deviant, I guess. Yeah. That's where I disagree. Well, I mean, it literally is deviant. You can get in trouble with the law for it. It's yeah, it's illegal, right, John? But not all crimes are deviant. <laughs> well, and not okay. all deviant acts are crimes. That's that's day one of intro to crim, John. It's definitely illegal, yeah. but it's still you know. Though there is some sort of, I mean, yeah. <clears throat> Again, I don't know if deviant is necessarily even the right word, but there's yeah. certainly that. It kind of comes back to our discussion of coolness, right? Like that coolness isn't always some way rebelling against the authority. And this is clearly something at least many authorities are telling them they should not do and is a very bad thing to do. Um, yeah, but, but because that, was so this a case for you guys? Low, low risk method of rebellion. Did you guys have dare in your uh, high oh, yeah. schools? Oh yeah, uh, not high the school. student representatives. Oh, no, yeah, no. Too. By high school, anyone would have laughed at them. Like middle, like elementary school, though. Yeah. yeah, we still believed them then. Uh, high school, there the still only dare people, you saw were ironic shirts. Um, yeah, we still had people <laughs> who were part of the organization, so it would look better on their college applications. Oh wow! Who high were school. well known as drug dealers or oh, alcoholics sure. and stuff like that. So you know, models or whatever. Yeah, whatever they were. Right. Yeah, it's which uh, was always comical, and that seems to be a, an anecdotal story that everyone it's, has experienced. It's how all the kids sure. that are in like the. Uh, Crazy oh, Christian organizations end up getting pregnant out of wedlock all the time and stuff. All of them do. It, yeah, it, all it, of them. It is amazing, One, actually. Like I, I don't. I, I know that there's. Okay, this is just talking out of my. But ass anyway, here. hold on. I don't quite. I don't get where the the point's going though. Who? Like, what point? Well, like with hypocritical dare role models or. Okay, I guess. you're right. Okay, so there's there, there's two points we're uh, we're talking about, and maybe we shouldn't go that direction yet because the deviance point is worth pursuing. We've never talked about that on this. I don't think it's true. We never have. we talk about hypocrites a lot. Um, <laughs> you think we're kind of like bitter, judgmental people or something? Um, okay, so like on the deviance thing, I was thinking about this because what you're talking about is it it is deviant in some by some definition of deviant, but one of his points was that it opens up behavior that is also deviant, right? from a certain perspective. So, you know, kids right. taking care of one another and doing things that they wouldn't normally do. Um, because, well, yeah, I mean, so here's the thing, like, so deviance in this sense is really context dependent, right? So, I mean, they certainly opens up a lot of things that deviate from the norm. That's definitely, yeah. I mean, like I another, another example I'm thinking of, right? So, you know, I mentioned, I was reading that I, I, I hate to do this because when you bring books up, like, you bring the same thing up a couple episodes in a row. People think you're obsessed with it or something. But you know that Born to Run book I was telling you about, right? No, like, I don't. It paints this picture. Oh, you weren't in on that episode, and you, of course, didn't listen. Um, oh, no one listens to this podcast. Yes, they do. 
That's true, actually. Yes, they do. You many people. <laughs> I'm not one of them, though. That was a fantastic exchange. <laughs> anyway, a few episodes back, uh, when Jesse was not around and has no way of, of knowing what we talked about. No way. It wasn't documented in any way. Um, You're killing me. <laughs> I talked about this book, Born to Run, uh, where uh, the author follows this uh, sort of tribe in Mexico that runs crazy. Like, they run, like, ultra marathons every day, right? Um, and they're just these great runners. But the other thing about it is that they also have these, like, crazy parties. You know, so they'll have these big races and then they'll have these incredible orgies afterwards where like everyone will get wasted and they're just, they're just nuts. Like everyone goes crazy. Right. How do they have that energy for running? That's just it. Like they, they'll like be hung over and they can still run 50 miles and kick your ass. Um, but anyway, the, the point that they were, he was making about that. And this is, you know, you see this, so this isn't just like a, you know, like a, a, a commercialized American culture kind of thing, but like the, the, or the, 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 the big parties served a function, right? I mean, they got all of their, and anything that happened then, you know, whatever happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. What happens at the party stays at the party, right? Uh, it like opens up the parameters of what acceptable social behavior is. And, you know, you can do whatever you want. And then know that whatever, you know, the next day, whatever, it's forgotten about. You know, it was it was a special moment. Whatever you did, you're not accountable for that. Right. And that can like be kind of a, 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 a you know, a release valve on a, you know, society that's filled with rules and norms and day to day, boring, mundane ways about going about doing things. Right. Sure. So, you know, drinking is, is important, man. I agree. <laughs> It's quite important. I wish I was doing it right now. Um, yeah, that, I mean, but, essentially, right? Yeah, but our, essentially our binge drinking college ritual is pretty much a slightly tamer version of what you just described. Yeah, but that's but that's what I'm, it's like the, the, the point about deviance, I guess, is that there, and maybe I don't, maybe I'm, I'm, I'm pushing this point too hard just because I'm thinking, oh, we should talk about that. Uh, but, you know, there's, there's a sense in which uh, it's at least, if not deviant, since that's kind of a loaded term, getting drunk is kind of taboo in a sense that, you know, it's, it's kind of yeah. marked as something that's careless and irresponsible and immature and whatever. Uh, but right. And the legal prohibition is also part of, you know, making sure. oneself feel like a faux badass, you know, sure. Scoffing at the sure. law, but it's just, this is just really interesting to me. This idea of a practice that is, uh, really basically every day and normal, um, that gets sort of, treated as taboo and exotic that when people do it also become gives them license to violate all sorts of other um you know rules and regulations as well and be sort of free to do it that's fascinating and that's probably another contributing reason to why it's really you know back to chris's point why it's really cast as a very like uh juvenile thing to do because it usually also, not just the drinking, but it also usually involves breaking many other social rules. Uh, and, you know, I would, for most people, I think as they age, there becomes less opportunities to have an environment where that's acceptable. As opposed to getting college where that's pretty much acceptable every day of the week, as far as I can tell. Yeah, one of the things I'm surprised it's kind of on this tip that isn't a bigger part of this little write-up in Salon is uh, sexual behavior and the, the sort of shadow concept of sexual violence, which I, I know he talks about in the book. But you'd figure that, that w- there would be more obvious questions about that. And if we're talking about 
breaking down walls and, and getting into behavior that you otherwise wouldn't engage in. Uh, you yes. figure the discussion would sort of naturally go towards that area. Um, but here it seems almost intentionally parsed out. That is very strange. That is a very good point. The, we have the dark side, in other words, of those rules and regulations breaking down. Yeah. Obviously, some of those are good, and many of those are good, and we don't want them to break down. That's true. But uh, it's sort of interesting because, you know, in this company, one of the yeah. big functions of drinking is to facilitate romantic and sexual relationships. You know, we sure, yes. sure have said function quite a bit tonight. Um, just pointing that out. Since one of my topics on the list was the comeback of Parsons being something that could happen. <laughs> Manifest and latent function was always a cool concept. It is a cool concept. Regardless of its origins. I like to just throw those words into everyday conversation. Ah, so the latent function of what you did was... Yeah. Is that is that how you teach Chloe? Yes. Like, <laughs> Chloe, you have to take your bath now. Uh, the manifest function here is to get you clean, but the latent <laughs> function is really teaching you discipline, and you'll thank me for this when you're older. And when you, yeah, get drunk to rebel against your strict uh, bathing behavior that your parents forced on you. Yes. I tell you, that's driven many a child to drink. Man, this book. That took a creepy turn really fast. <laughs> You're Not right. you said that. <laughs> so this I'm is, speaking for the audience. These are the chapters of this book. Uh, this is the shit show. That's the first chapter. Uh, two, getting wasted, the intoxication process. Three, I see that as a shout out to Howard Becker's articles in Marijuana. Oh, totally, totally. Being wasted, yeah. fun adventure and transformation. When everything falls apart, meeting the challenges of the college drinking scene. This sounds like a fun book. It does. I'm glad we gave it a little pre-review. -re pre Not a book review. You gave it a pre-reading review. pre-reading review here, yeah. That's the kind of intense, systematic scholarship we bring you on Sociological Improv. That should be the manifest function of our show, is to just give you the dilettante cocktail party conversation about stuff. The lazy Isn't sociologist? That, yeah. Now, see, at one point in time, I believe there was an announced rule that everybody had to drink during the recording of this, and that <laughs> fell by the wayside so long ago, and I frankly do not understand why. Because I, too, Chris, envision us as the witty cocktail repartee of the sociology world. <laughs> Casting me as the one who doesn't drink, as the designated driver of the sociology world. <laughs> I actually like that quite a bit. Uh, I feel as if any future business card you have should have that on there. Professional designated you can, driver? You can put that in your CV. Yeah. Designated driver of the sociology world. <laughs> I don't know. I was going to say, I am a, as Chris pointed out, he's a non-drinker. I actually was a non-drinker as well during college. Um, I didn't drink till really? I got to grad school. Yeah. So you. Because that's... that's how you kids think about grad school. <laughs> that's surprising. Uh, but so, Chris, I was kind of interested, and in, I might throw some stuff out there, too, about your perspective of the college drinking culture as someone who was a non-participant uh, observationist. Well, to tie it back to our deviant stuff, it was, you know, I had the deviant identity. Mm. The, yeah, the thing definitely. that I was known as, like, for people who were acquaintances and even people who were closer than that, one of the first things they would tell you about me was, oh, yeah, he doesn't drink. Yeah, was, was I experienced much the same thing as a college yeah. drinker. And it, it, it pushed me into friendships with other people who, uh, who didn't drink. One of my closest friends in college 
we we bonded over that initially. So, sort of like uh, how smokers now become friends because they're the only ones out there sitting there smoking. Yeah, yeah. You're the only so ones definitely. who weren't like passed out at the party. Well, it's yeah. the same thing. I remember in college a lot having to defend my decision not to drink, um, and I always because I was a huge smartass, would say, like, well, I'm pretty certain, like, not drinking is a natural state, and you should have to defend mm-hmm. your decision not to drink, or your decision to drink. But now that I'm a sociologist, and I can look at it much like this guy is, you know, truly, it does make sense. I mean, there is certainly that pressure there, on the even if it's technically not a majority of people who drink or who binge so, drink. So I think it's probably, I was just curious, like, why did the two of you, I mean, I wasn't, like, I'm not, like, wasn't and am not, like, a big drinker, really, but... Sure, you know. John. Um, whatever. Uh, I'll let that slide. <laughs> You're more of a connoisseur of <laughs> alcoholic. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I tend to just drink a lot and not so much binge drink. <laughs> <laughs> I'm constantly drunk. But so why did Sorry. the why did the two of you not drink? Is this a reason you care to share? I mean, like, is this you know, is it just like you you didn't like it or you know? Uh, I think we actually have fairly similar answers. But Chris, I'll let you go first. <laughs> now you're just going to copy me. Um, well, b- before I, I give the reasons, it's also interesting in because because if it's something that people know about you, it's something that they'll talk about. So you'll get that why don't you drink question quite a bit, and their suggestions of the initial reasons why you might not were always really interesting, and you could tell a lot about who you were hanging around with. Mm. So uh-huh. there were people who would automatically go for really dark stuff, like was there alcoholism in your family? Or are you a recovering alcoholic versus other people who just, you know, you never liked it or something more, more every day. So that was so always what, interesting. So you're saying what I just said tells you something about me? Yes. But I, I know you fairly well. You, you so drunk. You, um, tells us that you are a problem drinker, Jen. At this point, it's always hard for me to give reasons because the things about me that have been constant for a long time, I feel are now still the case more out of spite than anything else. <laughs> Um, I was a kind of a precocious teenager and, you know, one of those intellectual arty types and you really, I can't imagine that. Yeah, I know. And, and you always position yourself against, you know, the jocks and the cool kids and stuff like that. Uh, and they always were, were drinking and pursuing alcohol and so on and so forth. And I thought it was a, a massive waste of time that could otherwise be spent doing better things. So a really like whiny <laughs> initial. Uh, so why don't you drink? I'd rather be like reading. <laughs> yeah, um, but you know, like like uh, eventually, most people who don't drink find out about straight edge stuff, and I never really aligned too much with that with that culture. But I knew enough about it, and and a lot of the initial things uh, for the creation of that were before it got really crazy and cultish. Were well, you know, young people can do a lot of good if they're pursuing better things than this. And I guess I thought there was something to that at that point. Um, and probably in some in some ways, I I took hard some of the some of the uh, you know the generic programming you get as a kid. That, you know, there's obvious problems with drinking, so what's really the point of it? Right. I was fairly similar. I was a uh, mine comes from coming in the middle of nowhere and. Uh, you know, in small town Iowa, as an effeminate, uh, loud-spoken communist, uh, not like super cool with everyone. 
Um, so it was again this oppositional thing because I was like, I was different, man. Yeah, um, yeah. But then, as a self-righteous teenage punk, I stumbled into straight edge, and then I became yep. regrettably self-righteous straight edger. Well, I didn't like proselytized people, but I definitely felt myself to be morally superior to them. <laughs> I, I, yeah. So, so does you, the fact that you drink now mean that you've you've taken yourself down a peg or something? Dude, twenty-year-old Jesse would be. So disappointed with 29-year-old Jesse. <laughs> You're not He's now. You never were. Just a myriad of ways. Um, but, so yeah, you know, I, I was going through that stuff at the same time as finding out about better music. And, and so you get into things where straight edge is more common. But then you usually yeah. see the dark side of that stuff pretty quick, too. Because I would say there is something to this, like... Uh, taking on adult roles to things as drinkers because as a non-drinker I there were like a few people who were like like really heavy drinkers who it was like I don't know somewhat I was always somewhat impressed with their ability to like handle things when things got really messed up as they tend to do in such type situations um and it definitely seemed like yeah and I definitely remember like regarding those people as like you know somewhat I don't know if I would have thought mature but like capable i guess would be a better word you know like even when things are really crazy look at how you know, this person handles it and does this that or the other you know kind of things so i think there's something to that like you know maturity thing yeah definitely Just although i, I wonder finish my sentences Wait, what'd you say I, I said the dead silence kills me when i finish sentences <laughs> i feel like Just speaking into a void right now i i agree with your point i wonder what this guy's numbers are, uh, what his data is, because I feel like while that is definitely something that happens to a lot of, to, to some people who kind of grow into that almost parental role of taking care right. of people while yeah. they're drunk, while perhaps still being drunk, it really only happens, like it might happen to certain people who are already kind of predisposed to doing that kind of stuff. You know? That's fair. Like I don't think it's something everyone gains from the experience. Because if you simply observe the situation, you know that a lot of people. Though I don't know that he necessarily, that, so. to, be, to be fair to him, I don't think he was implying that it happens for everybody. It was presented as a, it can be. Yeah, know, yeah. I'm just wondering what the what the percentages might be, because that's kind of interesting. Sure. I think I think it's more the, the, the whole, like, war stories thing. You know, like, shared, yeah, like, definitely crazy experience, you know. Uh, I don't know. I, I think it's, I think it's, I think it is possible. I'm going to go out on a limb here and say it's possible to overstate. <laughs> the possible the positive utility not not in the social sciences we never do that it's it is actually quite possible to overstate well no but i mean i think it's just I, I think it's still an interesting finding though because it's pretty much like you know widely regarded as a bad thing like at best it's seen as like yeah it's pretty stupid but you know being stupid it's part of being a kid you know what i mean like even people who more or less defend binge drinking will recognize it's like inherently uh, somewhat bad nature. But I just think, you know, this kind of thing's interesting because, you know, he's pointing out like, well, you know, it's not an entirely bad thing. Like it does have some positive functions, John, if you will. <laughs> Manifest and latent functions. Oh, there's latent functions all over the yeah. piece. It, uh, A-G-I-N-L. Presumably, which if somebody say wanted to call in the podcast, <laughs> leave us a little voicemail of their opinions. What number would they call, John? Hold on, I got, I got a, I got a look. 
<laughs> you are not good at this spur of the moment. This shtick no. is just killing me. Here's what I'll tell you, loyal listeners. You call in, you leave us a little message explaining what, you know, reaction to the show, topic we should use, something like that. We may put it on an episode, unless that doesn't appeal to you, in which case we won't. Uh, but this is your chance. This is the ground floor. You know, someday when we're <clears throat> writing at about 30,000 followers, you'll be uh, blessed to have been in on the ground floor. 612-424-AGIL. And plus, you, it will literally make our week. Everybody's week. If there was an actual honest-to-goodness voicemail in that mailbox. And not That's just Arturo. 2445 is AGIL. Yeah, and no one will answer that phone. It is only a voice mailbox. Yeah, it goes straight to a you, a, a obnoxious and voice mailbox. Chat with us. wanted to like geek out about politics there's definitely something to rip on about the, what obama is finally doing with or did with the, the this jobs bill stuff so i'm not i haven't paid attention to it what's the hook there so okay so did, did either of you see the talk or his, no. his talk on the jobs the jobs bill announcement i guess it was um it was you should watch it if you're the kind of person who's really frustrated so, so basically here's the thing with obama and and this is why everyone left of um, Michelle Bachman is basically angry at the guy is that, well, she's angry at him too, but for different reasons, right? Um, you know, he, he ran in 2008 as this kind of transformative leader, right? Uh, who was going to whip Washington into shape, you know, and people didn't like Congress. They don't like the way Washington works. And they wanted someone who had the courage of their convictions to stand up to them and, you know, change the way it works, right? Right. And instead, what he's done, like take the health care bill, you know, uh, he did, for, despite the fact that it's called Obamacare, uh, it's really not Obamacare, right? I mean, what he did is he basically came in and said, okay, this is a priority, Congress, get it done. It's up to Congress to build it, you know? I mean, like, for example, the most contentious piece of the entire bill the individual mandate was actually not in Obama's healthcare plan as a candidate. He opposed it. And Hillary, it was in, it was in Hillary Clinton's plan, you know, just to like give you an idea, like people talk about that as the defining feature of Obamacare and Obama himself actually wasn't even for it initially. You know, it was Congress's plan. Really ironic. If you want to credit it, call it, call it Harry Reid care or something like that. Right. Um, but anyway, that's what he did. And of course, Congress did it. It was ugly. It dragged on for a long time. Even though there are many very positive popular elements of the bill, the bill overwhelmingly has a bad reputation as a whole in the abstract. And like that's an example of like that's not what people wanted him to do, right? People wanted him to say, here's the health care bill. Here's why it's the right thing to do. Now let's pass right. it, you know, because Congress can't be trusted to just be left on their own. They're a mess. We're all sick of them. And then... uh Basically, and if and if basically that's what he and then 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 this most recent stuff with the um him buying into the debt crisis, like what debt crisis, right? I mean, of all the crises right. we're going through right now, the the the, the long term debt of the United States government is not really one of them. 
right? Yeah, not the most relevant. No, I mean, <laughs> there are a lot of things that are way more pressing and important. You know, like uh, jobs, for example. You you bring you get put people back to work. That will raise revenue, and the debt crisis will be gone. Basically, you know. Correct. Um, but instead, so you know, you see him. Want you to believe? Yeah, but instead, you, what you saw is Obama saying, "Well, instead of taking out a bold position of my own, I'm going to basically look at what." Republicans are saying and maybe meet him halfway, just like preemptive yeah. compromise, which is what he'll do. And it's just incredibly right. frustrating. So anyway, on this jobs thing, he comes out and he says, here's the plan. Here's what we're going to do. We're going to put all this, you know, we're going to put money into this money into that. We're going to put teachers back to work and fund education. We're going to fund this. We're going to fund these infrastructure projects. Here's how we're going to do it. Now pass it. You know, like that was like the refrain throughout the talk is pass this bill. Now pass this bill. It's the right thing to do. It's a good bill. Pass it. You right. know, and you know, of course, like you know, as as like the liberal or I hate to say prog we could talk about that if we want for you know, progressive quote unquote. Like I'm like like finally, you know, like finally, this is what you should have been doing all along. You know, sure. People don't want Congress to get together and compromise because no one trusts anyone in Congress. They want a leader who can say. Here is the right path. Here's what we want to do. Let's get it done. Stop bickering, you know? Um, so anyway, from a, from a sort of purely political perspective, it's like it was, it was refreshing. But then, of course, immediately afterwards, where did all the, uh, the political analysis go, which is, okay, that was a great talk. Fat chance this is going to get anywhere, right? Um, because Republicans, the last thing they want to do is give Obama a big legislative victory right now, right? Uh, even right. if they, even if he somehow put out a bill that was every line of it was written by a Republican, <laughs> it would not matter because there is no way they're gonna, you know, hand him a big, leg popular legislative victory this close to the election. No way in hell, right? I mean, we've seen what they'll do. They were willing to hold the American economy hostage. So that they could basically ram through their agenda on the debt ceiling crap, right? Sure. There is no way they're going to pass. But they only did it because they love America so much, John. Of course, they love America See, so much. Sometimes you have to hurt the ones you love. Exactly. Uh, gotta, gotta, you know. Anyway, um, I forgot where I was going with that. Oh, so here's the here's the question. There's a defense of Obama, and and his record, right? And we, you know which is saying that, look, look at the realities here. Look at the way the Senate works and look at the um, political climate in our country where, uh, you know, politicians and the media and basically the country are really tightly under the con under control by, uh, you know, a, a, a powerful elite interests, right? With lots of money and lots of influence. And, you know... In that environment, is it realistic to expect radical progressive or even even strong progressive reform, liberal reform of these systems when those interests are opposed to it? Right. And from that perspective, you can look at it and say, well, actually, they got a lot done. That's not, you know, revolutionary, but a lot of good stuff done. That's the best you could have expected. Right. And then, you know, there's this there's been this big debate about sort of the opposite side of that criticizing Obama in particular for not talking in a different way. This whole focus on language. Have you guys heard about this? Like there was a, no, Oh God, who wrote it? There was an article. Well, 
can't think of the guy's name. A political scientist, maybe, or a communication studies guy, wrote an article in like the Times, and it was an op-ed saying, you know, um, it's all about the language. Basically, was was the take-home? Like, Obama's bought right into the right-wing way of talking. And this is a common theme among like sort of left pundits, right? Uh, Obama and the Democrats buy right into the right-wing talking points, and if they would only right. talk about things in a different way, it would change everything, right? And the response to that is that no, that's ridiculous. I mean, look at the look at the the structure of our society. That's that's not going to happen just by changing the way we talk about taxes. All of a sudden, everyone's going to want to pay taxes. It's not going to happen, right? So the question is, this new strategy, if you will, on the jobs talk, right? So say, uh, like, what's what's the 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 positive? What what could come from this that's good? Assuming the bill won't pass, you know what I mean? Um, let's just assume hypothetically that they've been taking this rhetorical approach the entire time, you know, and, and assume even the exact same stuff had gotten done, assume the exact same bills had been passed, the exact same, uh, uh, boring, um, uninspiring legislation had been passed for the last few years. But instead of talking about it and going about it the way they've gone about it, they were using a different, um, uh, PR approach basically, right? Approaching publicizing their legislation more like what Obama is now doing with the job bill, right? Uh, is Does that have positive advantages? If not necessarily, they would have gotten a lot done. Like, yeah, they would have passed, sing they would have gotten single-payer health care if only they'd talked about it differently, right? No, but I mean, I think that that's the point of talking about it differently, though, is to shift that sh how you talk about it sets the parameters for what you can do about it, right? It's like once, for example, it became about what are we going to do about the debt ceiling, uh, then it was, well, we have to do this, this, or that to, like, fix it, the debt ceiling, right? But before, you know, I mean, every other time they do this debt ceiling, like, rarely ever has a debt ceiling been a problem. They just go on, right? But, like, if you can force that, the parameters of the discussion to be debt ceiling, then you have to do this, that, and the other, right? So the idea was, you know, if he had, if they had spoke about, you know, like, a need for single payer or speak about, you know, the rich sharing the burden of war, you know, whatever, choose whatever thing you people wanted to be saying. The idea is to shift the parameters of the conversation itself, thus actually indeed allowing them to get those much fancier things we all want. Yeah, exactly. I mean, I, I but I guess that's the question is, would that have happened? You know, um, given all of the complicated things determining what policies get passed and which ones have no shot right uh especially when you have a senate that is basically incapable of passing legislation or doing anything positive you know uh see i don't know there's actually do you read ever read uh glenn greenwald um, like political i'm familiar familiar with him i'm a big fan but he has this kind of reoccurring motif that it's more or less like wa washington's like bickering partisanship is like essentially a myth um for the most part, like bills pass with like an overwhelming majority, and it's only these kind of few like show issues that is really like. I mean, he he constantly makes this argument that there needs to be extremely more partisanship, um, and I think it's actually right too because if you look at like say Social Security, I mean, I guess now some like Rick Perry talked about it like a Ponzi scheme. I think he said and talked about cutting it, and that's still provides a pretty strong reaction from, I mean, even wasn't Mitt Romney giving him the business about that? Yeah. <laughs> giving him the business. 
I believe how how else would you phrase it? It's, it's a gentlemanly I, conversation, John. I just just imagine him thinking of it that way. It's just funny, but go ahead. Um, well, you know how conservatives love their business. Uh, but anyway, yeah. So I mean, and that's you know obviously nobody's going to confuse him with a flaming radical anytime soon. So. Um, I mean, yeah, again, okay, but it's so, because well, it's because Social Security, right, is such a popular thing, and when it's like clearly, you know, the parameters, it's like cutting Social Security is still outside of the acceptable parameters of like political discourse for the most part. Yeah, yeah, no. And so, yes, John, how you talk about it does matter. But, but the end. But, um, I, I'm not sure that's true of Social Security because of the way we talk about it. Or the way we talk about it has anything to do with it, right? Um, it's fine. I, but, but I mean, I think the question is looking at what the Democrats have and have not been able to get done. Like, how much of it can you, how much can you blame on the language that they've used to talk about what they're doing, and oh, the way sure, that's the, fair, the sort yeah. of public relations uh, strategies that they've used, which it certainly can't be the entire story by any means. Yeah. 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 So, so, I mean, I mean, that's, but that's why I'm thinking all this reading, uh, the sort of, uh, post game analysis of Obama's job talk where he's taking this new approach finally, uh, you know, and, and they're all saying, well, yeah, but who cares? It won't pass. Right. There's no way this will pass the Congress. And the question is, so, so it doesn't. Right. But instead of it doesn't pass, it doesn't pass after, you know, the president going around the country and many, you know, spokespersons for the president and people who are on, you know, allies of the president uh, going on all the talk shows and all over the TV making the case for this, right? So then it doesn't pass, you know. Um, is that better or worse than having killed it on the drawing board before you ever even try to, you know, get That's, it out there? I mean, well, of course, is that better or worse depends on if you mean that by re-election chances or by, you know, outcome for the American people. Um, but I also think that that's kind of putting the conversation in an unfair spot because when people are talking about, like, what he should have, like, there was a time where it was more feasible, right? Like, when he came into office for the first two years, he had, like, a strong majority in the Senate, you know? I mean, he had... He had this, like, windfall of support. You know, he won a pretty, you know, it wasn't a landslide, but he won by a pretty healthy margin, you know. Um, I mean, heck, when Bush was reelected by, like, a, an incredibly thin margin, he, like, immediately called it a mandate and went to yeah, town. He had you political know? capital. Political capital. Exactly. I remember. He was impressed he, with that uh, word. Well, I mean, that's the thing. People underestimate how much uh, he loved Bordeaux. But anyway, uh, I mean, but it's a thing, right? So there was a moment when he, when it's, you could see how he could have done it, right? And maybe you can argue now it's not feasible, though I still think it's quite feasible. But um, you could certainly argue at that point in time, definitely, you could imagine that he'd come out swinging a bit harder, whatever political analogy you want to use, um, that maybe some of this, these things could have happened. Yeah, I but, mean, ultimately, the problem is he never said he was going to do any of these things. People just, like, project their beliefs onto him when he clearly never really had any desire to do any of that stuff in the first place. So there's yeah, your real problem. Yeah, that's my whole take on this But thing. I'm just saying, like, it was a feasible moment when he could have done those things had he desired to. Well, and you have to imagine they would have been – maybe they wouldn't have gotten everything, but they probably could have got a lot more. 
What What was your take, Chris? Oh, just that. I mean, to anyone who was paying attention to to the kind of policies Obama actually supported as a senator and previous, he was a pretty centrist Democrat and fairly boring. But then the campaign had such a an amount of hype and and progressive interest in it that all these things, as Jesse said, got projected onto it. That I feel like people were sort of suckered into believing we're going to be uh, part of his administration when. If you looked at his record, they obviously weren't, and it was going to be pretty, pretty boring, pretty centrist stuff. And then, as for the person himself, he always struck me as someone who was probably because he's an academic, as someone heavily invested in the sort of realist, real politic of it all. So well, you can always yeah. present yourself as someone who's the outsider who's going to stand up to Congress, but the fact remains: if you want to do anything, you have to work with Congress. And it's going to be a mess. The, the outsider approach say, is good, is it's doomed to fail, even though it's an effective election strategy. Right. It's not well, going to get policy. I mean, I also think too that it's to to defend Obama. I mean, I think a lot of it. He definitely made some promises that he didn't come through on. But I think a lot of it. He never said he was going to do a lot of the things people are now complaining he didn't do. Right? They just I don't know. In believed the, in, in the, their heart of hearts he was going to do it. I think. I think you're right in the specifics. But I also think that talking about you're gonna you know gonna change the way Washington works. Um, well, every single politician ever says they're gonna change the way Washington works. Oh, of I mean, course. Like, well, okay, fine. But I mean, if you if you still believe it at this point, I mean, you know, you know I mean, you talk about doing the you know, there's a lot of stock talk about doing the exact opposite of what the you know George W. Bush did. It's yeah. true. Yeah. Oh, I'm not saying I'm not saying he didn't break any promises. I mean, he definitely made yeah. some. Some fairly bold statements about things he planned on doing that he yeah. never got close to. But but I, but I guess I, I mean I guess my uh, to, to sort of Jesse what you were saying a minute ago about um, you know what's in the interest of politicians versus what's in the interest of the of you know the American people or whatever. I think there's this like short term interest thing because because here's what I was what I was trying to build towards is so say they that there is a because on the one hand, I'm I'm totally sympathetic with the people who look at this argument that oh they just need to talk differently and everything will change. Like I, I I also have the same reaction when I read a lot of these critiques from from sort of the left of Obama and the Democrats. Like oh yeah sure if they had just talked about it that way, obviously people would have been in favor of it. And in fact and and the and, and in fact no I'm pretty skeptical of that view. However, I do think there's something to it in the long run. You know um, where. If, you know, you, 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 you push for an aggressive jobs bill and sell it in strong, uh, liberal, progressive language, that even if that effort fails, you are building a narrative that people will understand as you go, you know, for other it's policy Barry Goldwater idea. Yeah, right? exactly. Barry Goldwater failed, yet look what he, you know, built a conservative movement. And it took decades you know, it took decades to reap the rewards of that, but it worked, you know, and, yeah, and there I don't were a see, lot of rewards. I mean, but seriously, look at look at Obama, though. I mean, look at look at the liberals and progressives. All right. We should break and talk about progressives at some point. I hate throwing that in there, but I feel like I can't, you know, liberals are so angry and disaffected with Obama already. I mean, it's been two years, three, three, four years, almost three years. Jeez. Three years, it's been three years. Do you know what Brown v. Board of Education has <laughs> It's been two years. Wait, three. Oh, wait. Everything's different. It was 1973, okay? Um, it's been three years, and already people are, like, fed up and, like, ready to give up. 
You know what I'm saying? Like, forget it. It was a failure, you know? And, uh, I don't know. Did Reagan certainly did a lot of things conservatives weren't happy with. Uh, but did they react in the same way? I don't know. I don't know. I just, I just see this kind of do, well, do, 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 do liberals actually have the wherewithal to hatch a 20 and 30 year plan to change massive policies when no, you because, get fed up and pissed of course, off after just a couple of years? Because conservatives have all the like marketing majors and liberals have all of the art history majors, um, which is mostly just a bad joke, but I ah, used a grand truth to it. Liberals have, uh, you should be conservatives have marketing and advertising majors, liberals and sociologists. Exactly. Um, but no, I mean, you're right, John. It's kind of a, it's, it's definitely there's, I mean, it's pretty old news, I guess, to say that the liberal movement in the United States is not particularly strong at the moment. Um, and I'm sure part of it is just the sort of generally somewhat pendulous nature of politics. Um, but you're right. There doesn't seem to be, it's hard to identify who or what group or kind of thing right now would be building some sort of sustained Goldwater-esque, you know, liberal movement that would then reach dominance for such a long period. Yeah, because, I mean, it's interesting, too, if you th- if you look at it. And I, I'm forgetting where I read this. Um, cause it would be nice to actually have some, some numbers to back up what I'm saying here. But the assumption among, uh, liberals is that the Republicans have been schooling Democrats for decades now, right? It's mm-hmm. actually not true. I mean, if you look at the presidency and you look at Congress, it's actually not the case that, uh, well, Republicans have been, I, con- have been dominating I, government the entire time. It's not, but true. here's the thing. It's, it's not true in maybe party affiliation numbers, horse race sense. Right. But it's definitely true in a broader sort of like ideological. Yeah. And again, it's sort of like yeah. what, what are the acceptable parameters? I mean, because Clinton was a pretty conservative president, you know what I mean? Like he, uh, at least if you're looking at him to be that opposed from the Republicans, right? Or, and again, the same thing for Obama. He's super yeah. centrist, which the is two best Republican presidents of our generation. There you go. Um, right. But so, I mean, that's sort of the thing, you know, again, it's so, yeah, it may not be a numbers dominance, but there's definitely, as Chris more clearly put it, a sort of discursive and I would say ideological, almost, almost nay, might I say hegemonic uh, (laughs) sort of position. Or to to bring it back to Purdue, the, the political field is established on Republican terrain. Oh, I like that. That's a good metaphor. I think I've mixed it up, but yeah, I think you should have, you should have made it more like a football metaphor. Uh, well, there is that classic football metaphor that American politics takes place between the 40 yard lines. But I think in the, uh, over the last 20 years or so, it's, it's switched to the, to definitely to one side of the field. Between the 50 the yard line and the 35 yard line. <laughs> yeah. of the, uh, but yeah, now with the kickoff wish. thing. <laughs> yeah. A new kickoff thing is going to just shatter American politics as we know it. <laughs> um, I don't know. Is, can we definitely say that there was a conservative movement, like a, a cultural movement to, to take the discursive terrain like that? Was that something that happened as a result of intentional I, action or just I, happened? I think there definitely was, actually. I mean, there was there were all these think tanks and um, uh, sort of 
political say, operatives that were sort of got their start. Yeah, in that I'm aware area. of I could, but hey, things that happened in California and think tanks and stuff, but they're still, uh, I don't know. Go ahead, Jesse. Sorry. If I could bring some sociology into this. Um, so actually, well, cause it just comes from a lecture I was giving this very afternoon, but, uh, Catherine Beckett, who's done some great work on th- this sort of like, um, political maneuvering and especially around the drug war, um, and where I've gotten most of my information about the Goldwater strategy from, uh, but sort of makes the point, I remember, I can't remember the title of the article, but, uh, it was about, um, sort of making drugs public enemy number one, right. Which was one of Nixon's big goals. Uh, and so if you look at survey data at the time, people were way more concerned, uh, with, you know, the war in Vietnam, uh, political crime, uh, you know, things that you might guess Nixon would want them to not be so concerned with. And it was only after his like continual pushing of drugs or public enemy number one, did they start to creep up the list every year in the annual survey of like, you know, the, uh, so measuring that what the public thinks is the most concerning thing to the States. Um, so, you know, again, it, it, I think at some level, it clearly was an intentional strategy um, to build this, you know, conservative movement, especially towards like, you know, for what I study, especially towards this law and order, more retributive criminal justice system. Yeah, the thing is, I for think example, it's it's just tricky because I think there's also an inherent unfairness because what, you know, conservative Republicans like Nixon want to push for also happens to align. I mean, it may be opposed to public opinion at any given moment, but it also aligns with the interests of economic elites. And that's just going to be a lot, a lot easier to to push, you know, I mean, it's a lot easier to push that than to say, push some, you know, that, uh, the financial, uh, 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 um, segment of the economy should be more heavily regulated, for example. Right. Right. Like right. it's a lot easier to, to it's a lot harder to push that when, say, that's a very powerful uh, group of you know people that helped elect you <laughs> and would help elect your opponent if you don't do what they like and are right. incredibly well, I mean, wealthy and influential, you know. You know, yeah, I mean, it's because since we live under a capitalist system, the conservative, you know, movement is almost yeah. by definition more sort of pro capitalist yeah. and the liberal movement tends to tamper its negative effects in some ways. I mean, let's put it this way. If, if drug users were among the most power, if the drug user demographic happened to be the most powerful people in the country, uh, Nixon probably would have failed. Well, it does, John. Um, for example, (laughs) there's the very infamous, you know, hundred to one disparity in, uh, crack cocaine to regular cocaine or sorry, powder cocaine sentencing. Right. Even though they're literally the same thing, just in different forms because, a lot of powerful, wealthy people like to use cocaine uh, and a lot of very unpowerful people do not. Right. So in that sense, yeah, Yeah, I mean, it's a quite literal example. Which today the end result of that being on the public consciousness seems to be that everyone should do cocaine and we'll just get rid of crack. Yeah. It's healthier for you. I guess, I guess my comment, yeah, I guess, I guess that comment I made came out kind of wrong. Uh, (laughs) Because that is really, well, the idea that rich people weren't doing drugs. That's actually not what I was trying to suggest. Right. Um, but they're not uniquely doing, they're not uniquely doing drugs, okay? They're, they're yeah. smart enough not to create an obvious culture around it. Yeah, yeah. It's not, yeah. Well, no, exactly. it's something that, yeah, something that is not exclusive to them, such as a lack of financial regulations does exclusively benefit them at the detriment of everyone else. Except for all those small business owners. <laughs> 
Jesse. You're forgetting the small business owners. And job creation or something. I don't Which, but I was just reading this thing about how the U.S. I don't even have my buzzwords straight uh, anymore. Like, like among, um, you know, I don't remember the exact, I don't think it was all countries, but, you know, pure Western advanced capitalist nations or something. Did you just say pure Western countries, pure. John? P-E-E-R. P-E-E-R. Oh. <laughs> wow, for a second there, I thought this was going into a place I did no, not No, 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 our peers. Among I our did. peers. Among our peers, okay? No not our, not P-U-R-E-S. <laughs> Uh, um, sorry. Okay. It sounded weird. I just wanted to clarify. Um, but like the U S has the lowest number of, uh, small business owners. Like we don't have small businesses. That doesn't surprise me at all. Yeah. But it's the exact thing that we've talked about before with like rural America where, um, as something like small businesses and small towns become increasingly under fire, they become an increasingly important part of our national mythology that we talk about and oh, definitely. pretend yeah. that our policies are all about when in fact small businesses are not being treated particularly well by our policies and haven't been the, for a while there was some interesting stuff coming out around the early 2000s the george w bush's first term that we're looking towards these sort of maybe it's time for big realignments in party affiliation where they were looking at things like the urban rural split and things like that and i, I was always waiting for something to come of that and it seems that nothing has well, um, I think we're actually that was, yeah, and then, and then like Obama's election, there everyone was talking about realignment too, and I yeah. think I think it's one of those things where because the economy is not is doing poorly, and no party has managed to fix it, like I I, I think we're just we're not going to see that. Now. Yeah, yeah, no, definitely not. Like uh, like a I think realignment. that's the way that if you were a political operative working on with organizations and institutions, that's a a kind of a possibly fruitful way to go about creating these sort of cultural movements that, that conservatives were able to, to do. Um, maybe not though. Clearly we're not political operatives. <laughs> oh, I am John. So yeah, politics. So who's going to get the nomination then? I don't know, man. I, you know, I would have, I, I kind of, I think it's going to be Barack Obama for the Democrats. <laughs> safe bet. Safe bet. I considered watching uh, the the debate the other night, but I only had seven beers in the fridge in 15 minutes until it started. And I was like, that's not enough. It's irrelevant to pay attention to this. To bring it back to drinking, I guess. I was going to say, yeah, it's super relevant. I mean, like, though I will say I'll give the, the, like, primaries are at least the debates are usually, like, somewhat entertaining because they'll get pretty snippy with one another. Um, I mean, like, the actual, when they get to just the two people debating uh when they've already been nominated that's just terrible but sometimes the uh sometimes the intra-party sniping can get uh fairly entertaining it it will be interesting to see what happens because the republican party is so divided you know and we saw in in 2010 they were basically had great success by being completely united against the democrats but you know now they've got this prolonged period of infighting and you got to wonder what effect that's going to have you know. well, I don't you know. know. I mean, They're pretty good at putting behind could... them for elections. Well, right. Republicans but... generally are, but our Tea Partiers, I don't know. It's, I don't well... know. It seems they're, they've they're bolder now. They're more rambunctious. I don't know. They might not. They might not. I'm making that up. I don't know. I think real politics takes over the closer we get to the election. Yeah. How no, else, do, how else do you explain Kerry getting the nomination? Um, I, I think actually, if I could build a tortured metaphor, 
I mean, you're essentially kind of seeing the uh, Republicans are having the like the revolutionaries problem now, right? Because now they have to govern. You know, it's like it's easier to tear down. Because I mean, a lot of their success has been attributed to the fact that like there is a, a there is a somewhat of a litmus test to be a Republican, but it's pretty minimal, right? If you agree with one or two key things, they'll pretty much accept anyone, right? Whereas uh, I feel like one of the reasons maybe liberals haven't been able to build as big of coalition is because they don't have that instinct quite as much. But so essentially, are you talking about now or like 20 years ago? I think in the movement to power and somewhat now, but I think that's why you're seeing there's a lot of turmoil. So they're still, I would say rather ascendant and on top, even though they suffered a minor setback after, uh, George Bush, but um, now you get so many fissures because they've brought so many people into the tent, which has allowed them to be so dominant. But I don't know if I agree with that. There are a lot of litmus tests for Republicans these days, at least. Um, well, that, and I, but I mean, I think that's kind of the reaction, right? Like, I think that's now people are getting because you have the, you know, they always write about this, you know, the Tea Partiers don't like this group and this group doesn't like that, you know, whatever. Yeah. And so I think that's, you know, you start to see them trying to constrict the borders now that, again, Eventually, you have to actually do something, right? Like, you can't continually say it's the other person's problem or it, default. It'll be, really interesting if Rom- it'll be really interesting if Romney wins, because I can imagine the following scenario where Romney wins and loses the general election because the base won't care. And a lot of people will say, and or he'll, he'll just be kind of a lackluster candidate, you know? And I think the compare a lot of people will be saying something like uh, Kerry in two thousand four. John Kerry yeah. is Romney in two thousand and four. I, I see it working differently. I think if someone like Romney gets it, it's precisely what the Republicans need to to win. Well, that's yeah, why I think yeah. Huntsman is kind yeah. of interesting. They need someone a moderate. They, they push the anti-Obama stuff far enough that they need basically. To be blunt about it, they need a white Obama, and they'll be fine. And and that doesn't nothing about. They need a white centrist, and all those Tea Party people will fall in line. I don't know. I, I'm, very, I'm much more inclined to agree with John. This seems like the kind of election that I feel Obama can win more for lack of an opponent than for anything he's done. Uh, because, man, I just – I don't uh, I don't really see any of these Republicans really bringing the group together that well. You know? I mean they all – I think Republicans usually understand – that it's better to keep keep a Democrat out than get the Republican you want in office. Sure, yeah, and, and that's Democrats definitely, that I system. think they've done that in the past, but at some point, there's going to be some group, and the Tea Party seems like they might be that group who doesn't fall in line anymore, you know, mm-hmm. who feels like it's their time, and, you know, it's their way or the highway. I just don't and see them that, as but numerical. But you that in some of the Senate elections and things, yeah. right? Yeah. So, I mean, it's not implausible. I can't. It It would be entertaining and interesting if that happened. I just see their numbers dwindling over the next year to where even if that happens, it's not going to make much difference on the outcome of the election. Well, and it doesn't – I mean, I don't necessarily mean everybody who identifies as a Tea Partier, but there's – you know, again, it's a pretty broad coalition, right? So there could be any number of disaffected people, et cetera. I think it's also (laughs) important – I mean, just – thinking of 2010 versus 2008, you know, um, Obama was elected with something like 65 million people voting for him or something like that. Right. Uh, something like 40 million voted for Republicans in 2010 or something like that, you know? So it's an off year election and the party outside of power always has an advantage in those cases. And the Republicans did very well and Democrats did very poorly. Um, but, 
you know, it's not it's not clear that that will translate into the you know much bigger out turnout that you'll need in the general you know in the the presidential election. So no, I, we'll I do see. feel not like. like I, Go ahead. This does seem like the kind of election where the like presidential election where there won't be particularly high turnout. It's not quite as nearly the you know. It's too early to say the event that. Too early to like say. What we were just talking true. about with the conservatives finding a way to to bring the fringes in is the same thing we we could just as easily switch and talk about that on the left side where it's the sorry to say it again, John, but the progressives who are the ones who keep threatening to to not support the party candidate and. And to do their own thing for the candidate they want, whether it's Kucinich or whoever ends up in that <laughs> position. That's so, funny. you know, and I that's still... like how you just openly laugh at any mention of Kucinich's name. The guy's hilarious. Come on. You, I mean, the I guy. Love him too much, John. He's a great, I mean, he's great as a congressman. Can you really imagine him as a president? I mean, really. The guy's hilarious. And yes, John, can you imagine no possessions? It's easy if you try, John. <laughs> I feel like Kucinich would have wanted me to say that to you. No, I understand. I, I, I understand that he is not viewed as a viable presidential candidate by most people. Yes. Every time I think, I mean, about why not Bernie Sanders? About, right? I mean, yeah. If we're gonna go, if we're gonna go kooky left, kooky left wing uh, congressman, Bernie Sanders is the way to go. He's he's. Well, why he's not badass. Bernie Sanders, John? Why not? That's the question. Maybe because this hegemonic ideology of the ascendant right has made it seem laughable that such a person could have a chance at the presidency. See how this conversation all ties back together? Yep. Maybe it's because he's Makes... like 70 years old. <laughs> I don't know. How old was McCain? I wonder about that, though. Here's something to ask, though. So after, you know, George Bush the senior, you had Clinton, who was a relatively young president, followed by Bush, who was a relatively, relatively young president, followed by Obama, who, again, is a relatively young president. Um, and so I, I wonder this. Now, I'm just throwing out a bit of pop sociology here for you. But could it be that in they were sort of the first presidents of the really big information explosion and the really beginning of saturation media? Is it maybe that only, you know, young, I guess, good-looking for presidential candidates, handsome kind of men – is? Does they have, do they have to be media personalities now? Dude. Is this a trend or is this just a coincidence of is, three younger than average presidents? It is not new. This is what people said about JFK. And, you know. And the, before the, that, uh, Rutherford Hayes. <laughs> yes. Oh, everybody loved that tap, Billy. <laughs> but no, I mean, because there was some people speculate, you know, retro, that like had we been in such a media saturated age, it would have been really hard for Roosevelt to be reelected. FDR. Uh, because, you know, he was in a wheelchair and that doesn't yeah. inspire a lot of people to yeah, think of yeah. right? No, I, I wasn't like disagreeing with you. I'm just saying, I think that it, I think that, uh, you know, the age thing is different. I, I mean, I guess the age, you know, cause Reagan was clearly a TV president. Um, right. Uh, Lyndon Johnson kind of lucked into the job. <laughs> I mean, he wasn't elected like, you know, he was vice president. You, you get it. Yes, um, I understand how he... Gerald Ford was kind of an embarrassment, right? You know, widely regarded as a fail. And he's probably the most awkward of, you know, like, I, you know, Carter, same thing. Carter kind of got made fun of for his TV presence, right? Sure. sure. Um, and for telling it like it is. 
Dude, I was reading this thing about all the environmental policies that Carter put in action that Reagan immediately repealed when he got into office that were like stuff that we're still trying to get done today. You know, yeah. he was like he was way ahead of our time. Thank God for Reagan. man. He, he had solar panels on the roof of the White House too. and Reagan took them down. Yeah, I do have to say Jimmy Carter is probably the coolest ex-president. Like he, uh, <laughs> he's pretty baller. But it was like the, the Malay speech, right? That was Carter. Yes, that was Where he Carter. just used his the, the, his bully pulpit to say precisely what was wrong with the country. And no one wanted to hear it, but he was, according to a lot of analyses, correct. <laughs> I actually, he was on um, uh, Bill Maurer, Maurer's show a couple, yeah, maybe Moyer? it was almost the Moyer. No, not the PBS guy. Bill Maurer. Maurer. Okay. Moyer Maurer. Mar, I believe it is. Moyer. Mar. Anyway, his show. The guy on HBO. Yeah. The guy that cusses, not the one who doesn't cuss. The guy um, who likes prostitutes. The guy who likes the prostitutes. The guy with significantly less dignity. Um, <laughs> <laughs> anyway, he talked about that. It was, you know, basically, he was saying that was kind of the sad legacy of his presidency. You know, basically, every president since him has been afraid to challenge people, you know, to challenge yeah. the American people and say, We've got to do this. And, you know, that was not uncommon. It wasn't like he was the first president to do that. Lots of presidents had done that, challenging the right. American people to do better. And ever since then, politicians have been all about, hey, 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 we'll give you what you want. You know, we can. of course you can have it. What do you want? You can have it. You know, you don't need to do right. anything differently. We're the problem. Government's the problem. We're doing everything. You know, you guys. And, yeah, I mean, he's, Yeah. I don't know where I was going with that. Pro profound. Maybe that's what Obama should have done. Maybe he should have challenged us. Yeah, and maybe, just maybe, respected see, with that, we would have risen to the challenge. And that's what I was saying earlier, is that I think people thought that he... I mean, maybe he still can. Who knows? He may win re-election and have... We're, we're barely at the beginning of his presidency, if that's the case. Who knows what, what will happen. Actually, I, I fully suspect that, that if Obama gets a second term, he turns pretty hard to the left. Ah... Uh, I just don't see it. Why do you think that, though? Um, I think right now he's he's smart enough to know that that would be massively unpopular and ineffective. But I think once you're in your second term, it yeah. doesn't really matter. Yeah, but is there like his, is there historical evidence for this? Did did George right, W. Yeah, Bush go harder right during his second term? No. In fact, you could say the opposite. Did uh, what about Clinton? Did Clinton go harder left during his second term? I don't think so. No, no. There's no evidence. It's just it's just a random thing. Just Not claiming it as any <laughs> any matter of of scholarly. Uh, I mean, I of course work. hope you're right, <laughs> but I don't think you're right. I don't know. Because I I think there are topics on which he is more personally invested that have no place in the discourse right now that his his proposals on those will be um, more in line with, once again, I apologize, John, the progressive wing of the party. And I Seriously, think he will what's try wrong to... With saying, what's wrong with saying liberal? He will try to introduce those um, in his second term if he gets reelected. What's the difference between liberal and progressive? I think on other things, he'll stay centrist, stay problematically right if you are a liberal. But I think on other things, he will, he will introduce them. And these, these are things that speak more directly to... Uh, I think race and class than uh, than what we usually get. Yeah, I mean it's it's undoubtable, un undoubtable, 
Undoubtedly. Oh, John, <laughs> killing yourself. <laughs> it it starts, is undoubtable that this happens. Starts with, if it starts with UN, I just shouldn't say it. <laughs> Clearly, that is what we've determined tonight. <laughs> um, that explains your isolationist policies. <laughs> there is there is no doubt. <laughs> there is no doubt that he's been seriously hemmed in by the economy and the right. economic situation. I mean, it's it's hard to be a to get a in lot the sense done. That Franklin Roosevelt was hemmed in by the economy, but he seemed to well, turn. Yeah, but not right away. Actually, I mean, he was yeah, president yeah. for a long time. It's not like he came right in and started doing all the. No, pro- I'm willing to accept your notion that he is still relatively early in his presidency and could potentially do something. I'm just again citing you to argue against yourself. <laughs> There's nowhere in the record that says that that's his intention. Damn it! I won. <laughs> John has successfully defeated himself in argument through me. This is this is what my life is like. I just walk around winning arguments against myself. It's- <laughs> Your life is impossible. I know. You truly are the Charlie Sheen of this podcast. <laughs> what? I don't know how I feel about that. You just that. go through life winning, you just said. I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> we were talking about memes earlier. and Memes, not memes. Is it memes? <laughs> no, it's memes. Memes? Like jeans. Okay. It's a it's Good a take Lord. on jeans. It's memes. They're jeans of for culture. I, have no I feel like I'm very disjointed this whole podcast tonight. I do not think I came across well. I felt the same way actually, but you know, what do you do? Not all winners. That's the name of the podcast. <laughs> No, the, 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 